0: Welcome to The Bread Project. Bread is the classic carbohydrate of civilization and the spiritual metaphor for the richness of our human experience on Earth. Yet the breads we buy in the modern supermarket are only a superficial impersonation of the breads of bygone days. Indeed, the bread you put in your shopping cart or buy from a local baker might be making you sick in ways you never even suspected. So what happened? And what needs to happen next? In The Bread Project, we're asking the question, in an age in which every carbohydrate is positioned as pure dietary evil, where chemical contamination of our food is endemic, and in which our food systems are industrialised beyond all natural reason, is there really a redemption story for bread? I'm Melody patterson Meta, and this is Reinventing the Supermarket. Hi, today it's a true pleasure to be able to welcome the renowned cardiologist and author, Dr. William Davis. Dr. Davis became more widely recognized a few years back when his now famous book, Wheat Belly, shot to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And of course, that was just the first in what is now a growing list of his best-selling books on how to improve our health and lose fat by removing grains from our diet. Dr. Davis's expertise on the subject of grains, and especially on wheat and its effect on our human biology, is the ideal place to start as we begin to deconstruct bread and the ingredients that go into it. Today we'll be discussing some of the myths and misconceptions around wheat and bread, and we'll be honing in on the differences between modern and heritage wheat varieties. We're also going to discuss some of the many health issues that are being caused by or linked to modern wheat and breads. And it all goes far beyond mere gluten sensitivity. In fact, we're going to touch on everything from old-style sourdough fermentation to Ezekiel bread. For those people who want to keep commercial breads and wheats in their lives, we'll discuss how best to manage that choice for optimal health and what you need to be looking for on bread labels in order to protect yourself from some of the main dangers. So let's go. My recent discussion with Dr. William Davis, from obesity to autoimmune diseases, from poisonous proteins to dangerous contaminants, and is modern supermarket bread really anything at all like what your great-grandparents ate? And if not, should we even be eating it? In this episode called Myths of the Healthy Whole Grain.
1: Dr. William Davis, thank
0: you so much for joining me.
1: Sure, my pleasure.
0: It's it's wonderful to have you here because you have had a tremendous impact on my own health journey. You are um, you're a bit of a hero in uh, my own opinion, simply because you really brought to light I think in the in the most understandable of ways the importance of wheat in our diet and what wheat is doing to us and in in this discussion I really want to cover off the the myth of of the healthy whole grain. And because we're specifically talking about bread in this project, no, there's no product in the world on supermarket shelves that leverages the marketing term of healthy whole grains quite like bread does. So <laughs> I'm, I'm keen to hear your initial re- response to the term healthy whole grains.
1: Well, you're right, you're absolutely right. There's hardly a germ of truth in that. Uh, it's it's a it's typical marketing spin to help sell a product that is incredibly destructive to people there i would argue in fact the opposite there's no such thing as a healthy whole grain there's not even a barely tolerated whole grain and that these things in an ideal world we'd have no grains whatsoever and we would see the entire landscape of human health transformed
0: now people uh, who aren't familiar with your work and and your book Wheat belly may not know the stance that you've taken on wheat, and of course, wheat is the most famous ingredient in in bread. Um, really, you look at wheat as basically a poisonous a poisonous substance.
1: That's right. So I started this conversation by picking on the worst, what I call the the ringleader, modern wheat. And I say modern wheat because modern wheat is very different from traditional wheat. Modern wheat in Australia, in North America, in uh, Russia, in uh, in Saskatchewan, is an 18-inch tall, high-yield, semi-dwarf. They call it semi-dwarf strain. So it stands barely a foot and a half tall, very different from the four and a half, five foot tall traditional strains. So modern wheat is essentially a creation of genetics research. Now, they took something that was really unfit for human consumption, traditional wheat, And then made it much worse. And that's when we saw all the problems associated with grain consumption, but particularly the worst, wheat, uh, amplified. We started seeing more mind effects, appetite stimulation, food obsessions, migraine headaches, more autoimmune diseases, more uh, inflammatory diseases, more diabetes. Of course, it was made worse by the national advice, Australia, North America, to make grains the centerpiece of a diet. And so put those two things together and now it explains a lot, not all of, but a lot of the reason why we have the worst epidemics of diabetes, type 2 diabetes and obesity in the history of man on earth.
0: Uh, You know, it's so amazing because as a marketer and having been on a a journey of trying to bring my own values to the work that I do, I have to say that the term healthy whole grains is has probably been the most destructive marketing term of all time. And that it, it's certainly driving a, an awful lot of what's going on uh, in supermarkets and in people's diets. But this dwarf wheat is really interesting because it's a it was a very different beast to the wheat that was coming along before Before that from biblical times, of course, we've got this tremendous cultural attachment to wheat and to bread. But you're saying that the dwarf wheat was a huge leap forward in in, or a leap backwards, perhaps, in terms of how dangerous the grain was.
1: Yes, exactly. So they change, you know, if this if 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 if, uh, agricultural products were drugs, They'd have to go through extensive testing for safety and efficacy. But of course, uh, agribusiness can introduce extensive changes of of all sorts into their crops and never even have to test what they've done. And so at the very least, they've introduced new allergens, proteins and grains and other foods that induce allergy. And we're seeing that, of course, worldwide. We're seeing more kids with asthma. We're seeing more kids with eczema and seborrhea and other forms of allergic diseases, they're all on the rise also. So at the very least, they've changed the proteins, never once stopping to examine the protein sequences, protein structures to see if they could be, uh, have allergic potential in humans. But that's the least of it. They changed multiple, mostly proteins in, in wheat and other grains and amplified inadvertently. These are not entirely evil evil people. They're not doing it to mess with you. They're doing it to suit their agricultural designs, such as increased yield per acre or pest resistance. And that, by the way, the effort to create more pest-resistant wheat strains is part of the reason why wheat has become, another reason why uh, wheat has become so toxic. When you make it pest-resistant, one of the things the uh, geneticists do is they try to increase the content of something called phytates, because phytates are um, effective to keep away pests, right. like molds, fungi, and uh, insects. Well, but if you increase, increase the phytate content of grains, it also binds iron, magnesium, and zinc, and calcium in yeah. the gut.
0: So now you're saying that phytates are um, much more prevalent in the modern wheat than they are in the old wheat.
1: Right. And it's by design. It's 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 on purpose. They did it for pest resistance, not to mess with you, but for pest resistance. But it binds all those positively charged minerals. And so it causes magnesium deficiency with cramps and unstable blood sugars and higher blood pressure. It causes zinc deficiency, which reduces immunity and causes skin rashes and other funny changes. It reduces iron absorption by as much as 90 percent. The phytate content of two slices of whole wheat bread is enough to block iron absorption by 90%. So wheat consumption. (laughs) That's so much. (laughs) Right. So wheat consumption is one of the world's major causes of iron deficiency anemia, which is a serious problem in a lot of countries, particularly developing countries, because if kids become iron deficient, they if they have anemia from it, their growth is impaired, their learning capacity is impaired. Uh, they have a lot of health problems from it. And that's a huge problem for 2 billion ki- people worldwide. So the phytate, the increased phytate content in modern wheat is another reason why wheat has become so toxic. Another protein is called wheat germaglutinin, which is a class of proteins called lectin proteins, but a similar uh, experience as with the phytates. Wheat germaglutinin is toxic to pests. And so wheat was cultivated to develop strains richer in wheat germaglutinin content, well, it's toxic to pests and it's very toxic to humans. Right. If you take a, if you take just a milligram, which is just a little dot, of wheat purified wheat germaglutinin, and you give it to a laboratory rat, right, its intestinal tract is essentially destroyed. It looks just like celiac disease, but it's not celiac disease because celiac disease requires gliadin. People say gluten, but it requires gliadin.
0: Is, so this this why, is... is this why, sorry to interrupt you, is this why so many people feel like they are um, on, a, on a pathway to celiac and getting relief when they are going gluten-free, uh, simply because they've stopped this destructive process in their gut from eating wheat?
1: So when you stop wheat and grains and you experience improvement in some gastrointestinal complaint it's not just from the gluten it's from all the components that are are toxic to the gastrointestinal tract so gliadin Glyatin, by the way, is a more precise way of talking about the gluten protein. I, I I try to discourage people from talking about gluten because gluten makes you think imprecisely because it causes you to fall into the trap of thinking that if, if a food is gluten-free, it must therefore be good. You likely know that the gluten-free foods are, they're not as destructive as wheat, but they're pretty close.
0: They're, they're so, very, very bad. They're an awful lot of very processed carbohydrates, very highly processed, refined rather carbohydrates and uh, just empty calories, basically.
1: Exactly. And there's another problem here. And this is why I encourage people to think a little bit more precisely about these things. Is corn, being a related seed of grass to wheat, is does not have the gluten protein. So people say corn is gluten-free. What, they, what you're not told is that there's a protein in corn called zein that looks a lot like the gliadin protein within gluten. Interesting. So corn is indeed gluten free, but it's got something pretty close to gluten and gliadin called zein, yet corn starch is the number one ingredient in a lot of gluten free foods. Now that's corn starch, not corn proteins, but it's contaminated by residues of the zein protein. And that's why people, uh, for instance, with celiac disease, the 1% of Australians who have terrible, terrible uh, uh, intestinal destruction from the gluten, but really the gliadin protein of wheat, rye, and barley, will also continue to have symptoms if they eat gluten-free foods that are made with cornstarch. So we have the gastroenterologists who are telling people, eat gluten-free, having no understanding that you're exposing someone to an extreme carbohydrate load, very super, as you point out, super refined carbohydrate load, and a protein that acts a lot like the gluten or gliadin protein in protein of wheat, rye, and barley. So that's why I'm trying to encourage everyone to think more precisely because it, the 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 Benefit of thinking more precisely and understanding what you're doing in nutrition is spectacular health.
0: I Yeah, it really is. It really is, and I just want to point out that you're talking about proteins and while a lot of people know the term gluten not everybody knows that gluten is a protein and that proteins can be very damaging to our health if they're the wrong proteins coming into our gut particularly so what you're talking about is dangerous proteins not all proteins
1: are are good Exactly, and the reason why they're they're so destructive is because they're not fully digestible and sometimes completely indigestible. You know, if I eat a pork chop or a steak or a piece of salmon or an egg, I break the proteins down into single amino acids. Proteins are made of amino acids, so the normal digestion is to break down proteins into single amino acids. If you eat the gliadin protein of wheat, rye, and barley, you can't break it down sometimes it remains completely intact in which case it's very toxic to the intestinal tract and initiates the first step in generating the diseases of autoimmunity like rheumatoid arthritis so, but sometimes you can digest it down to pieces not amino acids but pieces or peptides that are four or five amino acids long and those are the peptides that have opiate properties on the human brain wheat germ and gluten is completely indigestible it remains intact And it passes through from mouth to toilet intact, but in its course through the gastrointestinal tract has all sorts of adverse effects. So you're exactly right. It's the indigestible or partially digestible proteins, because I remind everybody that wheat and other grains are seeds of grasses. We've been told that the human diet should be dominated by the seeds of grasses. You know, we can't eat grass, right? I don't know if you cut your grass in your part of the world, but I had to cut my grass once a week in in the Midwest, in the the U.S. And we don't save those clippings to throw on top of a salad. If you did, it wouldn't taste very good for one. I I suppose you could put some Roquefort or some Italian dressing on it. But if you did try to eat it, it would pack, besides giving you uh, uh, diarrhea and abdominal cramps and throwing up, what comes through would come through intact, completely undigested, and that's because humans are incapable of consuming any component of the grasses of the earth. You know, grasses are among the most prolific plants of all, entire of the entire earth. Yet we can't eat them. But we've tried. In right. a moment of desperation, ten thousand years ago, we found a way to make it edible. But not digestible. And it's those proteins that are indigestible that are responsible for a lot of the adverse effects of grains.
0: I think that's inc- an incredibly important point that people need to understand. And that is that the reason we eat grains is not because they were a preferred source of food for humans, but because they were available and very easy to grow in a in a world where calories were very, very difficult at times to get a hold of. So they sim- so humans basically developed ways of fermenting and re-fermenting and re-fermenting the grains to try to break them down to make them as digestible as possible for the human gut, when in fact they were not a preferred
1: food source. A- absolutely right.
0: Right. Uh, Yes. Uh, So I'd really like to just sort of come back to these thoughts of the autoimmunity uh, issues that are being caused, because autoimmunity is just at enormous levels in our society. And I think a lot of doctors don't know where to turn on it. A lot of doctors are simply not even, in my opinion, they're just not even um, uh, diagnosing real autoimmune issues. And a lot of uh, ordinary people just don't suspect that the issues they have around autoimmunity are, in fact, caused by the food that they're eating, and something as common as bread. And I'd also like to touch on the um, this opiate issue and what that's doing to us.
1: You know, I, I have a very low opinion of uh, healthcare, particularly in the U.S., where where healthcare has evolved to become the system created to maximize revenue return. To the insiders, the doctors, the hospitals, the pharmaceutical industry, the medical device industry. And so you're exactly right. The, the notion of healing of health is largely gone from modern healthcare because health doesn't generate profits. A change I, in diet, any change in diet is a waste of time to the uh, busy practitioner who's looking to generate procedures and other revenue generating opportunities. And so you're right. Uh, we've lost that in the modern age. Of, that's why I'm so grateful we have tools like this, like this podcast, or social media, or blogs, and books, and articles, and TV. Oh, because yes. we, we can get that message out that uh disease like autoimmunity, you're exactly right, is largely a disease. It's a man-made disease. And it's getting worse because we have this nonsense where we're being told to increase our consumption of healthy whole grains And now I don't have any data on Australia, but the the numbers in North America and Western Europe suggest that between eight and 13% of all uh, people now have at least one, if not several autoimmune diseases. And it's increasing every year. Now, of course, conventional thinkers are asking whether there's a widespread virus causing it or something like that. And then asking what kind of drugs can we create, particularly intravenous or injectable drugs that cost around $2,000 to $3,000 per month. But we know if you just remove the initiating factors in autoimmunity and then take a further step and correct the what I call the permissive factors, factors that allow autoimmunity to take place once it's initiated, you can reverse, I would say, the majority of autoimmune diseases. I'm surprised. Yeah. Nowadays, when someone's autoimmune disease doesn't reverse with this, it does happen that it does fail sometimes. And I'll tell you the majority of people who I talk to, I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people. Yes, The vast majority of people with uh, all manner of autoimmune diseases reverse. Now there are autoimmune diseases where you can't reverse them because the damage has been done like type one diabetes in children. The data is clear much, many if not most episodes of type one diabetes is initiated by Uh, grains, in this case wheat, rye, barley, and corn. We have data on corn also for type 1 diabetes. But once you develop type 1 diabetes, the pancreatic beta cells have been largely destroyed and you can't get them back. So most people who are diagnosed as type 1 uh, cannot return. By the way, we are seeing more anecdotal stories of some kids, an occasional kid actually reversing his type 1 diabetes, despite some damage to the pancreatic beta cells. I haven't
0: heard of that, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's still uncommon, um, so, and it only happens if it's done absolutely immediately upon recognition. So there must be some capacity for healing. Uh, and it, it's extended now. I think the longest has been two years, That's, that's but, it's, phenomenal. Still uncommon. but it, it's an instance where most kids, unfortunately have done the damage. Another one would be pancreatic. I'm sorry. would be uh, autoimmune hepatitis, where if you've damaged your liver, uh, to a certain degree, it may not recover. So while lots and lots of autoimmune diseases uh, reverse with this lifestyle. Some don't fully reverse because the damage has already been done.
0: Isn't, it, isn't the cognitive dissonance phenomenal out there in the medical profession <laughs> and in the in the food guidelines world whereby we could see these kinds of issues increasing at epidemic proportions in society, but we aren't bothering to address it?
1: I find it absolutely astounding.
0: Yes, I still that, recommend those those healthy whole grains.
1: Yes. And neglect all the other wonderful things that you can do in health. Um, some of the most powerful strategies I've seen over the years, restoration of vitamin D. It's huge. Cultivation of bowel flora. You know, because of this notion of eating healthy whole grains and perhaps exposure to other junk foods, intermittent exposure to antibiotics, chlorinated and fluoridated drinking water, and industrial compounds in our food, water, and elsewhere, we've managed to change the, the bowel flora, the microorganisms inhabiting, inhabiting our colon, dramatically. And that also contributes to the disease. So there's a handful of strategies. If you just take the effort to understand these issues and correct them, astounding, spectacular things happen. And this is why we're seeing type two diabetics become non-diabetic. We're seeing people with deforming rheumatoid arthritis reverse it within months. We're seeing people with lifelong migraine headaches uh, have them disappear or at least subdue to a very low level uh, within days of following this lifestyle. We're seeing an astounding change in landscape of health just by removing these foods that never belonged in a human diet in the first place, and correcting some of the other factors surrounding uh, these diseases.
0: So now when you're talking about the, the healthy whole grains, and I know we're focusing on wheat because of bread, but of course there are other grains that are being used in bread. Does this hold true for the other grains as well?
1: So the grasses of the earth are very promiscuous. They share genetics. So rye, for instance, is uh, for for eons has been the weed that grew in wheat fields, and so wheat and rye have shared genes, genetic code many, many, many times, both naturally and as well as at the hands of humans. So rye is essentially this. It looks different, it tastes different, but it is genetically essentially the same as wheat.
0: Okay, barley
1: likewise. A lot of the protein structures in barley uh, are very close to that in wheat, so the the wheat protein that's most destructive is gliadin. It's called hordine in wheat, but it's a, it's the same structure as right. gliadin. So for all practical purposes, barley likewise is very, very similar. Corn has that zein protein that looks a lot like gliadin of wheat, ryan barley. It also has the same kind of amylopectin A. That's the very destructive a carbohydrate of grains that is highly digestible. We've been told for years that complex carbohydrates are better for us than simple sugars. That's complete fiction. That's nonsense. In fact, complex carbohydrates, but especially those in grains called amylopectin A, are converted to blood sugar faster and more vigorously than table sugar. So they're so actually
0: more than it's such an important uh, thing to me that the glycemic index and the, the way in which eating these these uh, foods that are carbohydrates that are very quickly absorbed into our, by our gut and into our bloodstream, we're really trashing our pancreas and that this is not just about sugar and there's a huge push at the moment everywhere in the world. Uh, for sugar taxes which uh, I'm quite against <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> taxing everything in the in the food supply simply because I'm looking down the road and thinking oh my god because they're, they're going they're going to have to go after everything until we clean up the mess in the food supply because everything is contaminated with these with wheat everything it Almost every processed food you buy is contaminated by sugar or wheat or whatever. So I, I tend to rant on a little bit about the, the taxation issue. But um, I, I do find that we're trashing our pancreas, with, uh, which is, of course, uh, I'd like you to explain the pancreas and its role in um, insulin production and what we're actually doing to it when we consume these grains, and that that is as bad or worse than table sugar.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, it is ironic that they're focusing on sugar, which is good, uh, but they're ignoring the fact that the amylopectin A of grains is worse than sugar. And so um, uh, the pancreas responds to any rise in blood sugar by releasing insulin. Uh, now the problem is high blood sugar is toxic to the pancreas, to the pancreatic beta cells that produce insulin. So anytime your blood sugar goes high, let's say after a bowl of oatmeal with no sugar, a typical blood sugar would be 180 milligrams per deciliter, or that would be let's say eight or nine millimoles per liter uh, in your values. That high level of blood sugar is very toxic to the pancreatic beta cells when ex- when exposed repeatedly. Likewise, the amylopectin A of grains is converted by the liver to triglycerides. Right. That's why people who eat lots of grains get high triglycerides, and those high triglycerides are also very toxic to the pancreatic beta cell. This is called glucotoxicity and lipotoxicity. So the unfortunate uh, end result of this is that some people with type two diabetes can no longer be non-diabetic. Lots of people who have type two diabetes, even for 10 years or longer on insulin and on oral drugs can become confidently non-diabetic, but an occasional person, because of those, um, destructive effects of blood sugar and triglycerides cannot become non-diabetic because they've done so much damage to their pancreatic beta cells that even if they take out the grains and other sugars, their pancreas just doesn't recover sufficient to allow them to control blood sugar. So the key in my mind is to do this as early in life as possible so that you're not subjected to that toxic effect on pancreatic beta cells. Kids with type 1 diabetes, of course, like we talked about, they've done, most of the kids, the vast majority have done the damage already and they don't get it back.
0: Right. So in short, what ha- what's happening is once you've f- finished trashing your pancreas, you become a type 1 diabetic. But when you're on the road to trashing your your pancreas, you're, you can become a type 2 diabetic. That's the pathway to type 1 diabetes. And type 1 is uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that's where you actually need to have uh, insulin injections.
1: Right. And there's an increase. So, so the longer you're type two, the more you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You you trend towards a type one like um, profile where you need the insulin because you're, you're unable to make enough insulin. That's why there's lots of people with uh, type two diabetes who are kind of in between two and one. I'll call it uh, diabetes 1.5. <laughs> okay,
0: that's interesting. <laughs> it's a good name. Uh, th- so those little beta cells in the, pancre- in the pancreas that are producing insulin are being essentially permanently killed off every time you eat a slice of bread or something with a grain or particularly wheat in it.
1: Th- that's right. So that, that effect, of course, mediated two ways, by the high blood sugar, by the high triglycerides, and Less commonly, though, the autoimmune attack against your pancreas provoked by the glidin protein. So, in other words, we have this thing that is an extraordinarily destructive thing that uh, increases diabetes in a variety of ways.
0: That it it's actually really terrifying. And when I when I read your book, Wheat Belly, one of the very big pictures that I came away with in my mind was and it had a huge impact on my health, by the way, was that if I ate a slice of bread, every time I ate a slice of bread, part of my pancreas was going to die and it was not very likely to grow back because that pancreas just doesn't grow back
1: as a rule. Yeah, you make a good point. You know, people say, well, you know, everything in moderation. Yes. I'll do it six days out of seven. You've heard all these things. Yes, yes. People say. But the truth of it is it doesn't work that way. Just as smoking a pack of cigarettes one day a week, that doesn't suit anybody's needs. Same thing here. You do such destruction by eating grains, even occasionally, that it's just not worth it. Uh, I call these re-exposure reactions. So, for instance, beyond the... um beyond the pancreas and beta blood sugar issue appetite stimulation by those uh, gliden derived opiates is a phenomenon that lasts several days it's an effect i call i ate one cookie and gained 30 pounds oh it
0: means you're so this means you're hungry for days (laughs) days after you eat that bit of bread you're going to be hungry is that worse with the new wheat by the way than it is with the old wheat or is it pretty much the same
1: you know, that study has never been done. It's a tough thing to, to look at. But if we if we look back, it all began. The extravagant increase in appetite and the increased consumption of junk carbohydrates occurred in the mid-1980s. And that coincides perfectly with when mo- the products of modern wheat, modern high-yield semi-dwarf wheat, were introduced and all wheat products on your supermarket shelves came from the high-yield semi-dwarf strain. So I, I believe that uh, there is indeed... Um, Uh, We could argue that the newer strains of wheat are responsible for the appetite stimulating effects, the extravagant appetite stimulating effects of of modern wheat based products.
0: You might be interested to know that in the mid 1980s, I was a young copywriter working in Australia and a big part of the workload that I had for a couple of years was producing materials for the Australian wheat Uh, basin (laughs) and i used to have to write these all of this advertising phenomenal amounts of it and i can tell you right now that the key messages were always yield 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 so this was very much an an era when the new wheat was being introduced the new dwarf wheat and uh, the other big message was high gluten high gluten high gluten high gluten because of course, the wheat was traded based on, in international markets, based on its gluten content. So we needed to get, so what we were doing was we were selling high gluten content into the wheat market so that they could maximize the profitability from whatever yield they had. So in fact, and gluten being a protein, of course, uh, we know now that the proteins can be very poisonous. So the whole process of growing wheat at that time was very focused on maximizing the protein products within the wheat, which you are now telling everybody, are poisonous, essentially.
1: It's ironic, isn't it, that Uh, Wheat is an incredible agricultural success story and an incredible health destruction story at the same time. Yeah, the law of unintended consequences at work.
0: Right. I I have to also say that when I reached the point in in 2010, where uh, uh, having achieved at that time, without understanding why I had become morbidly obese, in spite of eating what I thought was a healthy diet and not having changed my diet over time after a year of intermittent fasting which really taught me about my reactions to food as much I think that was probably the greatest thing I got out of that intermittent fasting I encountered your book uh, Weed Belly then and That took me on a whole new pathway of understanding in a lot more depth what was going on with some of these very specific ingredients so that, as you say, we have to start thinking more clearly and in more detail and with more precision about what we're doing. I travel now, I try to stay home and work as much as I can, but I travel every month somewhere for a bunch of meetings and of course it's during that period of travel that I'm exposed to all sorts of foods that I cannot control and wheat becomes a part of my diet at that time when it isn't during the rest of my life where it's very rarely included in the rest of my life and it the the destruction that I experience every time I travel and am exposed to a lot of wheat is quite phenomenal. I spend um, a couple of weeks recuperating. I, be, you know, I come home. I have asthma. The asthma comes back. It takes a couple of week for it, weeks for it to start to go away again because I take the wheat back out of my diet. It's the Um, Once you start to notice the amount of health implications in your own life every time you eat a particular food, then you can really start to assess your personal problems with it.
1: Absolutely. So you're describing what we see a lot of, and that is uh, what I call re-exposure reactions. Uh, You may know the most common is gastrointestinal distress, bloating, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Other people get uh, a recurrence of their asthma as you do, or other allergic phenomena like eczema or psoriasis or seborrhea. Uh, if you had an autoimmune disease, it can come back uh, and it can last for months or longer. So uh, mind effects also, some people get very angry. People who are prone to depression can get depressed. People who are prone to suicidal thoughts can be seized by a, fl- a flood of suicidal thoughts. Uh, anger is very common in males. So there's a whole collection of these re-exposure reactions, and they you can turn them on. As you know, you can turn them on, you can turn them off yep. by stopping. You can turn them on again at will. So, which is essentially proof positive of a cause effect relationship.
0: Absolutely right. This once, and I do encourage people to try this in their own lives, and particularly to to buy the Wheat Belly book and to actually read it and absorb it and apply the thinking to your life because you will start to see just how your health is being altered on a daily and as you say you know the effects can last for days so you you have to start to monitor what are the immediate effects that are happening to you within hours what's happening to you within days and with with me for instance it can take me a week to two weeks of no wheat in order to calm my asthma back down because of course that's an autoimmune reaction that I'm having uh, to the grains, so the the effect of the grain on our health is is you, we just cannot overstate the impact that it's having on our health, and we cannot overstate the impact that it has when we start to pull them back out.
1: Absolutely, I, my my I, my life is quite wonderful nowadays because it's filled with all the people who are coming at me every day telling me how much their lives have turned around, you know. The wheat belly message is often perceived as a weight loss message, uh, and nothing more. But it's really a it's a it's a statement. It's it's an examination of this silly idea of making healthy whole grains a cornerstone of diet, and regaining health by rejecting them, and losing weight is just one facet of better health. But people perceive it as a weight loss message, and as you know, they also see it as a gluten free message. And of course, that's just that's not entirely true either. So that's why I encourage this this idea of precise thinking about the issues here like looking at not gluten but gliadin and the other issues because if you understand it you're better you're armed better in information particularly when you go on tv or talk to other people who say well of course the the, the government says we have to eat lots of healthy whole grains you'll be inundated with the opposite message but if you understand why all this works so well then you're armed with good information and understanding so you don't do the wrong thing
0: you're you're also uh, communicating an excellent message out there about the, the practices around the, um, the breeding of wheat these days. So it's not just the new dwarf wheat that was introduced in the 1980s that's causing this problem. There are whole new varieties of wheat and whole new practices which are quite alarming in terms of the chemicals that they're using and the possible outcomes that could be occurring in our health.
1: Absolutely. So, glyphosate, for instance, the herbicide glyphosate, which uh, you could spray on uh, glyphosate-resistant corn that is corn created through genetic modification, or you can use it to desiccate your wheat, which is a common practice. And glyphosate is proving, as you know, to have uh, adverse health effects, uh, including endocrine disruption, glandular changes.
0: Oh, a- uh, and absolutely! I'm doing. I'm. Act- I've actually done an entire, an entire episode focused on glyphosate <laughs> because it's, it's it's on the in the bread project because glyphosate is just so poisonous and is having such negative uh, health effects
1: but i caution people to not overstate what the additives and pesticides and herbicides are responsible for because if the only problems with modern high-yield semi-dwarf wheat or other grains was modern processing Or herbicides or pesticides we would solve all the problems by just being organic right and that of course is not true so if you were to return to your wheat for instance and had only organic uh whole wheat bread you'd get just as sick as you would from a non-organic product so you're right those those things are problems but there's really so much wrong already Right, intrinsically in the wheat and grain, wheat and grains, that that alone is, is, uh, accounts for a lot of the problems.
0: So where do you stand on the fermentation process and what that's doing to the wheat in terms of, particularly in terms of bread, because, um, we certainly, I can attest from my own life that I have a lot fewer problems if I have a properly fermented, uh, sourdough and just do you know just do try to eat and i let me just state that i probably buy two to three loaves of bread a year and often they're not consumed often i have to throw them out so that's how little bread i'm actually purchasing in my own life now because i haven't completely given it up i do recognize i do use informed consent which is (laughs) which is the critical thing as an adult but i have less problem with a properly fermented form of wheat. So can you comment on where you stand on that?
1: Well, this is another instance where I encourage clear thinking. So we should never regard less bad as good. Right. That's the kind of imprecise thinking that got us in this mess in the first place, at least uh, on on an international scale. So the people say, what are you talking about? the studies all show that healthy whole grains are good for you. They do not show any such thing. What they show is that if you replace white flour products with whole grain products, there's an apparent health benefit. That is true, but it does not show that uh, grains are good for you. There's a difference. So if you replace something bad, white and rich flour with something less bad, whole grains, and there's an apparent benefit, you can't conclude that more of the less bad thing must therefore be good. So likewise here, when you ferment, when you lactate lactate ferment a product, right. you reduce uh, or modify the structure of some of the gliadin and gluten proteins, you reduce some of the phytate content, you may degrade some of the amylopectin A, you reduce some of the wheat germ, but it's still there. Right. And so it's less bad. You know, this kind of thinking can get you in trouble, right? So low-tar cigarettes, 20 years ago were passed off to everybody as as good for you. Well, they weren't. They might be slightly less harmful, but you get just as much heart disease and cancer from them. So they were promoted uh, by doctors. <laughs> yes, that's right. And so I see the fermentation issue as yet another desperate attempt by the grain uh, industry to salvage its position, you know, and I feel for these people at some, you know, if if you're a small time baker or a a small bread manufacturer and you're having people like us bash your product, you'll find ways to uh, wage damage control. Uh, And that's what they're doing, by the way. This is, this is called damage control. Less bad should never be construed to mean the same as good. You know, if I, if my less bad product still gives, gives me, um, uh, lupus, right, or polymyalgia rheumatica—that's still pretty bad,
0: right. So, really, what we're talking about is—is um, is informed consent. It is the notion that if you want to consume bread in your diet, you should simply understand that you're co- you're consuming something that's not going to be good for you. That, if particularly, if you already have a history of reacting to uh, many of the um, many of the substances that are found within wheat that it may make you sick it may make you uncomfortable it may lead to ill health but do if you're going to consume it do it with informed consent and then make the best choices you can around it and minimize it in your life
1: yes well said i'm with you in that we shouldn't legislate these kinds of changes in people's lives because when you try to legislate things some people legislate stupid things they do like cutting fat in your diet, which is stupid,
0: right? If we so, had had this, if we had had this thought of sugar tax, uh, that tax something we don't like, then we would be paying massive taxes on butter right now. And it turns out right. that butter is one of the best. You know, if you get a good organic <laughs> butter, it's one of the best things you can ever eat.
1: <laughs> I, I agree. So, so legislating I is with, I'm hundred percent behind you in that we don't legislate these kinds of changes in diet, uh, but Uh, And people should be well informed about what they're eating. Of course, the difficulty here is that 98% of dieticians and doctors all still think that grains are good for you.
0: They really do. Uh, And so I just want to sort of um, cover off a couple of things here. So we're talking about, I want to look at the ancient grains because that's a very big, the ancient grains are a very big call out. Uh, And the Ezekiel bread, the sprouted grains are another very big call out in health terms. And where do you stand on the old grains, the grains that came about before uh, we had the dwarf wheat? And where do you stand on the sprouted grains?
1: It's an instance, again, of less bad should never be regarded as good. So let's ask this question. What happened to early humans going back many centuries and as far back as 10,000, 12,000 years? What happened to the first humans who began to consume the seeds of grasses? Well, that's become clearer and clearer. Uh, tooth decay, gingivitis and tooth loss uh, went wild. So prior to the age of eating grains, there only only 1% to 3% of all teeth recovered showed evidence of decay or tooth loss. When humans added the seeds of grasses, grains it jumped to 16 to 49% varying depending on what part of the world, what time. In other words, prior to the consumption of grains, tooth decay was uncommon, which makes sense, right? We didn't have fluoridated drinking water. We didn't have toothpaste, fluoridated toothpaste. We didn't have dental floss. We didn't have dentists or orthodontists and people lived an entire life doing not much more than picking their teeth with twigs yep. yet had a full mouth of teeth for most of their lives. When we added grains, tooth decay went rampant. And by the way, we see that same phenomenon in primitive cultures that persist to the modern times who incorporate grains. They go from full mouths of perfect, aligned, and healthy teeth to a mouthful of rotten teeth, full of abscesses. The number one uh, the number one cause for, number one cause for suicide in primitive cultures now is tooth abscess because it's so painful. I believe that. So, tooth decay uh, went wild. Uh, Iron deficiency, like we talked about with the phytates, skyrocketed. Because you can see it in the in the in the record, the historical record, you can see evidence, bony evidence of iron deficiency called parotid hyperstosis, uh, skyrocketed. Human height dropped five inches in males, three inches in females. Now that there was recovery over uh, a longer period, but the initial uh, response to the consumption of wheat and grains in early years was a reduction in height. Um, So we can only make so many judgments about what happened because these are from organs and body parts that are preserved in the fossil record and the historical record. Like livers and intestines, for instance, are not well preserved. But some um, what are called coprolites are preserved. These are essentially fossilized poop. And it's also clear that bowel flora and oral flora change dramatically when we incorporate grains. In other words, when humans... This wild living primate that for the prior 2.5 million years, ate the organs and flesh of animals, gathered nuts and seeds and berries and fruit and ate leaves, that when we, just a moment ago in time, turned to the seeds of grasses, health changed dramatically. And we've never quite recovered from it.
0: I have to just point out that, excuse me while I cough, Um, I just want to send listeners also to the work of Dr. Weston A. Price, uh, <laughs> as you say this, because, of course, Weston A. Price was a dentist and his phenomenal book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, it shows a remarkable um, a remarkable process whereby as these, particularly these highly processed grains and sugars came into the diets of modern people the um the the way in which their bodies started to fall apart was quite spectacular so uh, the book his book was uh he's long passed away now his work was of course done in the 1930s and 1940s uh, which was a unique moment in human history where he could see ancient diets right next to modern diets <clears throat> but the um, nutrition and physical degeneration is a phenomenal archive of what happens to the human body when we start to put particularly highly processed grains
1: into our food supply excellent yeah i think i think price's book is must reading not just for everyday people but especially for dentists who have largely lost this wisdom that the cause of tooth decay tooth misalignment gingivitis tooth abscess tooth loss is they know, they do they know about sugar, but grains likewise. Right, and as you know the as you, as you mentioned the what makes um, Dr. Price's book so uh, priceless is he has before and after photographs yes. that are striking, that are just absolutely striking.
0: Yes, it, it it the physical change from one generation to the next, literally being caused the two primary food sources causing it uh, that he establishes in that. In that study, that enormous global study that he conducted, were the wheat flours and the processed wheat flours and the sugars. And you can absolutely see human bodies falling apart as a result of these foods in the diet.
1: Yeah. So, so with regard to the ancient grains, we know with certainty that even the ancient grains triggered lots and lots of health problems. They probably weren't as harmful uh, as modern wheat, but as, as we've talked, less harmful or less bad should never be regarded as good. And likewise, this idea of sprouting the seeds, once again, it's a desperate attempt to try to squeeze the bad out And be left only with good, but you're you're still doing the same thing. It's less bad. And by the way, if you really want to sprout the seeds and try to follow some kind of biblical message, you can't do it with modern wheat. Modern wheat did not exist even, right? It's not even close to the wheat of the Bible. Just an amount of chromosomes, modern wheat is a 42-chromosome plant. You know, humans have 46 chromosomes carrying our genetic material. Modern wheat carries 42 chromosomes. The wheat of the Bible is emmer wheat, a 28 chromosome creature. It's very different. It's it's farther away from modern wheat than we are from chimpanzees. And I don't That's think- amazing. To, <laughs> That's amazing. That's
0: it, amazing. It should be alarming to people to understand that that the species that we are consuming as we when you walk into a supermarket, pick up a regular loaf of bread off the shelf, that species of plant doesn't look anything at the, at the level of chromosomes like wheat, the original wheat.
1: Exactly. If you held the plants up against each other, you would say these are two different plants, that they're, they're unrelated, they're completely different. And to, to some degree, this is true of other grains also. Corn being the most uh, vivid example, you know the cob that uh, people like to barbecue and eat and rub with butter that 's a creation of humans. If you saw the seed head that the cob came from, you realize what an incredible mutation this is it 's a mutation of the seed head. there's no such thing as a cob in nature
0: <laughs> absolutely it's a, it 's an artifact of <clears throat> excuse me it 's an artifact of having to harvest. And particularly at industrial levels, you want to be able to harvest very easily, easily, and collect all those seeds in as close a proximity as you can to one another,
1: and maximise return. That's right. <clears throat>
0: that's right. So I've got a, quite a cough here. It's just talking about wheat seems to, have, <laughs> seems to have given me a bit of a cough. Um, I'm I'm sort of wanting to walk through because there's there's this sort of bunch of, of issues that we've covered here. When you eat a slice of bread, of so what. <laughs> What are the big things? So, sort of, sort of those big buckets of things that are happening to you. You're eating a. You go to the supermarket. You pick up a, a size of a, a, a loaf of bread, and you come home and you make yourself a sandwich. What's happening to you over the coming hours and days? What are the big bits of damage that are happening to you? Uh, sort of to to kind of round out all of that thinking.
1: Well, blood sugar goes up almost immediately because. Um, you start digesting the amylopectin A with uh, your saliva. So saliva has the enzyme amylase that starts breaking down amylopectin very efficiently. So even by putting it in your mouth, your blood sugar starts to go up. When it's swallowed into the stomach, there's more amylase enzyme there, and it continues to break down this very efficiently digested amylopectin. And I should point out that amylopectin A is is the uh, exception to the rule that grains are largely indigestible. So it's extremely digestible. And that explains why blood sugars go so high. So blood sugars go very high and all the consequences of high blood sugar, like high insulin, insulin resistance, damage to the pancreas like we've talked about. Uh, It changes oral flora. So the components of wheat change the composition of of your mouth organisms. And that's why we have flagrant tooth decay in people who consume grains as well as sugars. Right. The gliadin, when it reaches the small intestine intact initiates the series, a complex series of steps worked out by Dr. Fasano at university of Maryland and Harvard that initiates autoimmunity, such as type one diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis and that glide in some of it's broken down to those small peptides and they're absorbed into the bloodstream and those small four or five amino acid long peptides act as opiates on the human brain. That's really interesting. Um, In kids, the the effect of those gliding derived opiates depends largely on individual susceptibility. So if you're a kid, a child with ADHD or autistic spectrum disorder, it causes behavioral outbursts and abbreviates your attention span. If you're prone to depression, it provokes depression. If you're prone to bipolar illness, it provokes the mania, the high. If you are prone to paranoid schizophrenia, it provokes paranoia and uh, hearing voices, auditory hallucinations. If you are prone to bulimia or binge eating disorder, it provokes twenty-four hour day food obsessions. And those of you who don't have those kinds of problems, it only provokes appetite, right, for junk carbohydrates mostly, uh, and mind fog also. So that occurs rather quickly uh, with exposure to the gliadin, dried opiates, the wheat germ glutenin. Uh, Uh, exerts all sorts of toxic effects that begin at the duodenum uh, because that's where it blocks the hormone cholecystokinin. And this is a little bit complicated, but the cholecystokinin hormone is released when you eat food and it causes your pancreas to release enzymes and it causes your gallbladder to to spit out its, its bile. Well, this is blocked by by the wheat germagglutinin of wheat and related grains. So bile can't get out like it should be, so you get bile stasis. That's the situation that leads to gallstone formation. Right. It blocks release of pancreatic enzymes, and so you get indigestion. You can't digest properly. You get this belching feeling like something's rotting in your tummy, and it causes partial digestion of food, not full digestion, and you get putrefaction over time and dysbiosis. And that's why you get changes like irritable bowel syndrome, intermittent diarrhea and cramps. Uh, there's more, of course, but you can see it's not just so people say, oh, it's just gluten. And no, 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 no. There's a whole collection of proteins and other factors in wheat and grains that exert unusual effects. And so that's why I, I, I try to educate people. It's not just about the gluten. There's so much more here. But if you understand all these issues or at least have or are acquainted with them, you are empowered in extraordinary ways to take back control over health. The, the list of diseases, of health conditions that reverse with this lifestyle is literally hundreds of conditions long. Not to say that every human condition is reversed. That's not true, of course, right. but a lot. I would estimate 70 80% of all human illness goes away with this lifestyle, particularly if you do it young in life.
0: I think I just want to add to that that <clears throat> the cherry on top with that slice of bread when you when you eat it is that having eaten it you are going to be more mineral deficient than you were
1: before you ate it <laughs> that's right it's a great irony isn't it we're told we must have healthy whole grains for proper nutrition and fiber it's complete fiction <laughs> so the more and you're it's... eating
0: it the the more deficient you're getting as you're eating it
1: Exactly. Now, there is a bit of truth, though. So the reason why people are uh, uh, have better health if they replace white flour with whole grains is because one of the things taken out in white flour are prebiotic fibers, fibers that nourish um, bowel flora. So I hate to admit it, but there is actually something good in grains, <laughs> <laughs> and that is these prebiotic fibers, such as arabinose Island and wheat and some others. So that's why part of the what I do with everybody in this wheat belly process, if you're going to take grains out to remove all the adverse factors, the long list of adverse factors, there is one thing that you should replace that was good in grains, and that's the prebiotic fibers. And that's why we have to counsel people on how to replace them. It's it's very simple. You just get it from a variety of sources, but you have to incorporate these into your day.
0: Right, absolutely. Uh, and certainly if you're eating a, a diet rich in vegetables, you should be getting plenty of prebiotic fibers from other sources as well.
1: Uh, some vegetables, uh, some legumes. Um, now, we have to be careful. We live in a world where diabetes, uh, weight issues, prediabetes are flagrant problems, and so we don't want to add to them. So legumes like chickpeas and beans and lentils are wonderful sources of prebiotic fibers, but they're also sources of amylopectin a, uh, Sorry, amylopectin C which is not as bad as the amylopectin A of grains, but it still can raise your blood sugar. So we still subscribe to a limited quantities of these foods so you don't provoke blood sugar issues.
0: Right, and, and the blood sugar is, issue is one we're going to have to keep coming back to. And I want to say again what you said earlier in this discussion, and that is that a slice of bread can have a, a worse effect on you than
1: eating table sugar straight off the spoon. That's right. You know that that simple fact is in every table of glycemic indexes in every nutrition textbook in the world. It's not as if we had to look very hard to find this out. It's in plain sight and it's been there for 30 40 years. Yeah. So, we don't have to make this stuff up. It's it's in plain sight. It's just not looked at, just not recognized uh, in the face of all this marketing buzz about healthy whole grains.
0: I know, I'm looking down the I'm looking down the track as a in my with my hat on as a brand strategist and thinking first they came for the sugar next they came <laughs> for the bread because I could see that happening you know um, obviously uh, the wheat industry is not going away the bread industry is not going away uh, part of this project from my perspective is to try to ensure that if people are going to consume bread that they consume it with informed consent hopefully that they give themselves a period of time during which they take grains out of their diet and especially wheat out of their diet so they can experience what that life is like prior to adding it back in and discovering what happens if they bring it back in because I think that we can only do that on a personal basis to truly understand what's happening to us. But bearing in mind that these markets aren't going away, I would like to sort of finish off our discussion with a little bit of a discussion about what should we be looking for on labels if we do buy bread. If we decide to go along and buy a loaf of bread somewhere because, you know, we're throwing caution to the wind, what do we need to see on that label in order to minimize the damage?
1: Well, I would advocate no bread made of any grain product because when you trade one grain for another, you're trading you, at best less bad for bad. So if I make a bread of millet, which is another grain, right. it doesn't have the in protein to provoke opiate effects or autoimmunity. It just sends your blood sugar sky high. So that's not a very good replacement. Right. Bread's made of sorghum flour. Likewise, similar problems, and there's some other problems from the proteins in sorghum. If you make uh, bread out of oats, you don't have the gliadin protein, you have the avenin protein that has some other effects, but you have sky high blood sugar. So I know of no grain that is actually good for you. Rice still raises blood sugar sky high, and we have this more recently identified issue of the arsenic content of rice products. So I know of no seed of a grass, grains, that is a suitable replacement for wheat. So we turn to other ways to recreate bread. Now, most of these are not sold commercially, right? Uh, because there are problems with shelf life and uh, storability, et cetera. So these are largely bread you make on your own. and That's what I do. I make them with non-grain flours, but also choose flours and meals that don't have other destructive effects. It'd be, it'd be a shame to chew, to, to replace a problem ingredient like wheat with another problem ingredient. Right. Uh, like, um, say, tapioca starch. Tapioca starch is horrible. Uh, it raises blood sugar sky high. So what I, I, what I do is I recreate breads and rolls and pizza crust and other foods and cupcakes and muffins with what I would regard as benign replacement ingredients such as almond flour, almond meal, walnut and, and uh, pecan flours, uh, sesame seed flours, a very nice flour, ground golden flax seed, coconut flour. There's a long list of these things that can make very nice pizza crusts or cupcakes or scones or muffins or cookies. Right. Um, so you can, people all, often fear that, oh my God, I'm not going to have any of those things. You can have all those things but you're just going to recreate them. We're all, the, the commercially available forms are only starting. You know, yes. food manufacturers look for uh, high volume and um, uh, good margins on their products. And because we, we make non-grain breads and other products, it costs more. And they know that they can't sell this to the broad market, so they're very reluctant. But as time passes, more and more are willing and smartening up that there's a large movement of that more and more people like you and me and your listeners are saying, you know what? I really do want to have a slice of pizza now and then. I do want to have some cupcakes. I do want to have maybe some stuffing in my turkey at Thanksgiving, but I don't want to pay, want to pay a health price. I'm willing to pay a little extra for that and still enjoy holidays and celebrations and entertaining and time with kids.
0: My message, <clears throat> excuse me again, my message to people who are out there buying products in supermarkets, is talk to the brands, talk to the supermarkets, make sure that you're communicating to them what you want because when marketers actually get hold of messages via email or via social media that are demanding new products or new ingredients or the removal of old ingredients, the marketers actually have a lot of power now to take those those demands made by consumers to the business and to put forward a really good case for starting to develop new products and we know that people are, are going to continue for the foreseeable future to want to be able to buy things straight off the shelf that are ready made simply because that's the nature of life today so uh, you have to speak to the you have to speak to the brands and if you are buying or engaging or with brands that don't allow you to communicate with them because there are a lot of brands out there, particularly ones owned by supermarkets, where they don't even allow you, they don't have a a social media page, they don't have a Facebook page, they don't have anywhere you can contact them. Don't buy anything from them because if you cannot (laughs) influence those people, don't buy their products you have to bring them to the table with the power of the dollar. So this is a bit of a rant that I make pretty much um, every time I speak (laughs) simply because we have to be influencing the people who are putting these products on the shelves because the products themselves have become so dangerous and it's not entirely the fault of the manufacturers. It's not entirely the fault of the people who are farming. It's an entire system whereby we uh, we have... Doctors on one side and nutrition researchers on, on one side saying, by all means, eat these healthy whole grains. <laughs> so what you, And they created the demand for the, for the grains. So now we need to create a new demand for the things that are going to replace the grains in our diet. So um, I know that your stance is that there's no such thing as a safe level of grain consumption. Is that a fair
1: statement? Yeah, you know, if you're desperate and you have nothing else, you should eat the bread or the rice. But if if you had the luxury of choice and long-term health is your goal, then grains do not belong in that experience.
0: Right. So whenever you are consuming grains, you are doing it, you are compromising your health.
1: Absolutely. In ways you might not recognize, you know, people don't recognize, for instance, that cataracts... Are, is a disease of grains largely, or that kidney disease is a disease of grains, or that esophagitis is a disease of grains and esophageal cancer. In other words, people often don't regard these as diseases of grains, but they are. And so uh, people often say, well, you know, I've eaten grains and I got through life, I did okay, not realizing that the medication they're taking for hypertension and acid reflux, and depression, and anxiety, <laughs> right. Migraine, are all grain problems
0: right so in fact that you can't you may not necessarily be seeing what's happening to your health because it could be so slow in terms of what's occurring as you eat the grains it may take 20 years for you personally to see the outcomes of it but those outcomes are going to be there one way or another it just depends on your personal
1: metabolic state exactly right i love your advice to vote with your wallet or pocketbook, because that's how we can affect change and improvement in our little corner of the world.
0: Right. And I do just want to say that as someone who, who because of my cultural attachment to bread, does want to have some bread in my life, and I know there are people out there who do want to have bread in their lives, it's just worth really understanding that when you do so you do so as an adult you do so with with informed consent and you make the wisest choices you can and try and make sure you don't do it very often so that really bread manufacturers are not going to like hearing that (laughs) at all because what I'm saying is stop buying a loaf of bread every week if you're going to have bread in your life buy a loaf of bread you know once or twice a year and get it over and done with, but don't make it a part of your life that where you're regularly consuming it. Agreed. Right. So uh, Dr. William Davis, I'm just so delighted that you joined me for this discussion. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta is reinventing and this the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.